Hey guys, and welcome back to the latest Teachers of Tomorrow podcast episode with your co-host, Matt, soon to be Mr. Aldrin. And your co-host, Sam, soon to be Mr. Gregory. And we are here to share our journey, experiences and views on all things education. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome back to another Teach of Tomorrow podcast episode, where today we're delighted to say we're joined by Professor Rachel Lofthouse um, from Leeds Beckett University. And today we're going to be talking about the subject of coaching and supporting teachers. Um, Rachel, first of all, uh, thanks for coming on today. We spoke to you last week and you know, we had a really great conversation. So looking forward to, to getting you on the potty. Um, do you care just to introduce yourself? Because you'll do obviously a lot better job than I will be able to. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Rachel Lofthouse. Uh, my uh, job title is Professor of Teacher Education. And I've had that uh, role for about three years at Leeds Beckett University. And prior to that, I was a teacher educator and researcher at Newcastle University. And prior to that, I was a secondary teacher. I was just going to just jump in there. Um, obviously, Matt introduced you as professor, but I'm sure you're a doctor. What's the difference between doctor and professor then? Or is it the same thing? Okay, so I am both. Um, but the so I gained a doctorate um, about five or six years ago. And therefore, I have the title doctor. And um, then I got the job of professor. So therefore, I have the, the ah, job title okay. of professor. I just wanted to make sure that we weren't a minute into the podcast and Matt's addressing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping bombs already. Good start. No, no, that's um, that was actually good. You cleared that up because I was always interested about what was what the difference was, but now clearly they just well, one, so one there are more. lots of people in this world who have doctorates and um, and those are those are qualifications unless you gain an honorary doctorate, so you can be awarded an honorary doctorate by a university. Um, and lots of people with doctorates work in. The academic world but more people with doctorates work in the like in the real world they work in industry they work in schools they work in business so um yeah that that's the difference oh there you go then it's already every day is a school day isn't it see every day is a school day so. <laughs> we always learn <laughs> yes yeah, absolutely um before we get started i'm just going to give out our details for anyone that's listening and wants to get in touch with us after the show Find us on Instagram on at Teach of Tomorrow or on Twitter on at TFT Pod. Um, and if you want to get in touch with Rachel, I'd say follow her on Twitter on at Dr. R. Lofthouse. And she has started a new business networking opportunity, which I know that you're going to explain in more detail throughout the episode. But if you want to follow that as well, then it is at Collective Ed One, which we'll get into later on into the podcast interview. Because, yeah, some brilliant work that you are you are doing with that so far. I'll explain oh, Collective Ed very briefly yeah. um, as you've introduced it. Collective Ed is the research and practice centre that I am the director of that we established at Leeds Beckett several years ago. So that's that's uh, something I'm passionate about and we'll no doubt come back to it. Yeah, so obviously, firstly, Rachel, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the, on the po- podcast. Um, like you've outlined some of the projects and, and things that you're doing. Sound really interesting, fascinating, hopefully. Yeah, we'll explore those later on in the episode. Um to start with then, when in your career did you really start to become interested in supporting and developing teaching and thinking skills? Okay, so I started a career as a teacher in the 1990s. Um, so I became a qualified teacher in 1991. And I was really fortunate um, that I 
never lost the links that I'd established with the university where I had done my PGCE. So I stayed in the same region in the northeast of England. Um, I went to work in a school in Durham as what was then called a probationary teacher. Um, and I maintained a, a working relationship with my former PGC tutor, a wonderful man called David Leet, who over probably the next decade um, created and then sustained a network of teachers in the region who shared an interest in developing pedagogic approaches that could bring a curriculum to life. And just to put that into context, I began teaching geography in the same year that geography became a national curriculum subject. So the first, for the first time ever at secondary school, we were obliged to teach to a curriculum framework from year seven onwards. So not just when we were teaching our exam groups in years 10, 11, 12 and 13. Mm -hmm. And the curriculum framework was one which was very weighty. There was a lot of content to it, a lot to be covered. But it didn't give any indication, um, and, and neither necessarily should it have done, into the how things should be taught. And I guess because as a group of new teachers, we were um, grappling with not just becoming teachers for the first time, but also becoming teachers who could uh, create something um, meaningful and worth learning from this weighty national curriculum document, it was worth a group of us coming together and really developing some, what we felt were quite innovative pedagogic approaches. So that's where my interest in teaching thinking skills came from. And I guess it's also the place where my interest in teachers working collaboratively comes from, because it was such a rich opportunity to work in a network of subject specialists grappling with some of the same problems, but across a range of contexts and really looking to create ideas that we could all take away and use, but also generate um, a resource that other people could learn from. So that link between teaching, um, working collaboratively, and then publishing in order to, if you like, create things for others came very, very early in my career. You... God, so I was just gonna say, I was just yeah, gonna well. jump in. Do you think that the timing of you becoming a teacher and, and geography as a subject, like you say, being introduced the same year. Do you think that timing, almost fate kind of thing, you know, that, that sort of sped, sped the process up and really sort of made you care yeah, more so, about the thinking side of things? I, I think so. And I think, um, I, th I think geography, not just geography as a subject, but geography as a place. So the fact that I happen to be located within striking distance of the university that I'd uh, done my PGC at and had gained, you know, formed good relationships through, uh, yeah. meant that it was a natural home. So going back, you know, every couple of months for an evening and sitting and talking with other geography teachers, facilitated by our old PGC tutor and with some mentors in the room and some very new teachers in the room to, to really kind of fathom out how on earth we would do our day job and do it really well. So I think it, it was a very fertile space um, 
who knows, 10 years earlier on, it, perhaps there would have been a different opportunity that emerged 10 years later, a different opportunity again. Yeah. But you, you can only exist in the time you've got. So you can make the best of the space and the time that emerges where, yeah. you're, you know, where you're at at the time. Yeah, I just wanted, I just wanted to follow on from the, the first question, because you, you said something quite interesting that you started your teaching career in 1991. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm right in thinking that the curriculum was introduced in 1990, uh, 1988 and then the reformat came in 1992. How much of a difference have you seen or how much of an importance has been put on supporting and developing teacher uh, and thinking skills from when you started in 1991 to now? Okay, um, so one way of looking at it is to recognise that things um, kind of carousel through the education landscape. So they kind of come and go in circles. Uh, things become um, very much um, at the foreground and fashionable and um, gather pace and momentum. And then they kind of retreat round a little bit out of sight as new things come along. Um, so I'm not going to suggest that in 1990 or the 1990s, it was a boom time for teaching thinking skills, but there were some very interesting pockets of pedagogic development around teaching thinking skills then, some of which came from the universities and some of which came out of local authority networks. Teachers used to work quite closely within their local authority networks. And in some of those, for example, a history advisor might have a strong conviction around teaching thinking skills and create a network of teachers to support that development. So it's always a complete combination of time and place and people coming together to create moments for change. I think the difference now is that we are in a place where um, we do, you know, thankfully know an awful lot more about physiology and psychology. So there's more understanding of the brain and there's more understanding of how that might um, influence learning and learners. Um, and we have a lot of um, opportunity to learn a lot it's not it's a lot easier as teachers to learn something in depth because we can become you know we can go down that avenue on you know through the internet I mean let's yeah. be honest we just didn't even have the internet when I was starting to teach it didn't exist yeah. so teachers can gain an awful lot more knowledge an awful lot more quickly and they can then start to connect ideas and put it into practice um, but what that does sometimes mean, I think, is that we we appear to create conflicting knowledge bases and it's not always very easy to navigate those. Yeah. So I think we, in the, yeah. the place a lot of teachers find themselves in now is is having to uh, is having to make a decision about which knowledge base they're going to draw upon when they teach or being told that that's the knowledge base they're going to draw upon. Do you think you would choose based on what sort of teacher you think you are? So is that how you would kind of choose what knowledge base you would follow? Or do you think it is better for people like yourselves to kind of point us in the right direction? I think everything has to be rooted in, this is going to sound really cheesy, but it has to be rooted in reality. So as a teacher, you are who you are. You have a personality, you have a motivation, you have a drive, um, you have the ability to form relationships 
you have a, if you like, um, a tendency to be attracted to certain ideas and theories. And that, that's where you're starting from. And you can't take that away. You can't peel those pieces off and put them in the bin. They, they are your starting point. Um, so I think what happens over somebody's initial career, uh, initial teacher training and education, and then their career development is that the person that they started as has opportunities to continue to be reshaped through the interactions that they have with others and also through the interactions that they have with their own learning. Yeah. And I don't think anybody um, has the right to tell an individual to become a type of teacher which they are uncomfortable with, which doesn't suit the person they are, because we are people, we're not robots. <laughs> but I do think that everybody has the capacity to evolve and grow and develop. And being open to that is probably the most important quality of a good teacher. You, you've already outlined in some of your answers and your experience that you taught, that you spoke about um, working with other people, like for example, like peer collaboration. And how does that relate to teacher development? And obviously you see this as quite integral and have you have have you got research to uh, to support this? But also going off what you've said as well, you've said as well that it's important for teachers to develop their own ideas and not be like you said, not be told what to do and be treated like like robots essentially. So, yeah, how much do teachers need to take on when to work effectively with each other essentially? Okay, so let's take another cliche, which is kind of two heads is better than one. Cliches um, flying around tonight. Are, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying them. A, I'm enjoying them. Evening, evening of cliches. <laughs> um, you reference that. Yeah. <laughs> reference 2020 Lofthouse. Yep. That's the one. Absolutely. So um, it, it would be naive to think that something as complicated as teaching a class of 30 children um, can be done in a singular fashion based on a single person's um, I don't want to say teachers aren't experts because that's not true, but teachers become experts because they understand the nuances that teaching a class of 30 very different young people um, demands they understand. Because yeah. just as teachers aren't robots, children aren't robots either. We are more likely to understand our learners and understand how to support their learning if we are in conversation with more people who are different to us. Because again, you're gonna walk into a classroom and however much you might like the idea, you are not gonna create 30 clones of you because each of those children is oh, entirely imagine. different from you and entirely different from the others in the room. And therefore, if we see ourselves as, um, if you like monoliths in other words we are a singular person with a single set of ideas and a single set of approaches we are going to hit a brick wall when we walk into a classroom of 30 other beings 30 other children yeah um if we can practice not being monoliths if in other words if we can practice the skill of listening and learning from others as adults then we are more likely to be able to take that skill into the classroom and make it work for us as teachers. So I do think that there's something about having to be quite humble as teachers, that although we've largely been successful through school, 
we've largely enjoyed school, which is why we're more than happy to go back there as adults. There are, there are uh, you know, some cases of teachers who are teaching because they hated school and they want to create an environment which is better than the one that they had. Or they are teaching despite having failed in, in kind of contemporary terms at school and having kind of fought their way back through qualifications as an adult. But the majority of us can see how we, we succeeded at school and we, it's far too easy for us to impose that set of understandings on the 30 children that we meet at nine o'clock on a Monday who are not the same as us. Yeah. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there because with me and Sam, I think we've both experienced different experiences at school. Sam very much will say that he didn't enjoy his time at school. And he's mentioned plenty of times on previous episodes that, yeah, his, his school experiences wasn't great. Whereas mine, on the other hand, was yeah thoroughly enjoyable. You know, just sailed through it was it was fairly enjoyable, and that was and that was that. And I think you talking about that there, and just me and Sam as an example is is what you exactly what you're talking about. And again. I think we've probably experienced the learning side on our placements so far. You know, when we, when I'm talking to my, my mentor, she also asked me questions and, and learn from me, even though I've only been there two, three weeks and vice mm-hmm. versa. So I think that networking and that peer collaboration for what you've just been talking about, you know, I'm actually experiencing at the moment. I was going to ask as well, it might be quite controversial because of the current curriculum that we have this worries me this worries me already (laughs) i I was just gonna gonna ask do you think that it allows teachers to ask those questions and develop in that way or because of the pressures and because of the narrow curriculum is it always going to be quite rigid within how teaching looks essentially or do you feel like there is ways to express freedom and creativity and, and learn different ideas of how, how to teach? I think that there is. Um, okay, so that I think we, we sometimes assume the curriculum itself is narrow and, and actually it isn't. It, it's, it has the potential for a huge breadth and depth. The thing which tends to narrow the curriculum is the need to work efficiently that teachers and schools feel and there are several drivers for working efficiently so one of them is that we don't actually feel we have enough time to do anything than work urgently at pace and efficiently so we haven't got time for the like the um for the, the kind of wandering off on a tangent, for example, in a lesson, because, you know, we've only got so many hours in order to cover what seems to be a very full curriculum. Um, or we haven't got time to sit down and spend, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours really um, getting to know the needs of a particular child. Because if you take that and extrapolate it by 30, that's taken up much more than a working week. So there's, a, there's always a pressure that we feel for time. And that's translated nowadays into the challenge of workload and the sense that a good manager will do what they can to reduce the workload on individual teachers so that they can work more efficiently. Um, and it's very hard if you're not working in a school. So take, take my position. 
I can't say to people, you should do more work. I can't say to people, you know, bend that timetable, take two hours to teach something in a way that might be more dynamic or more interesting or more creative when you could drill it in an hour. I haven't got the right to tell people that, but I can at least acknowledge that one of the drivers that might apparently narrow the curriculum is the um, aspect of time. The other drivers include the narrow outcome measures. So actually what's really interesting is that over time, over the last 30 years, the thing that has got tighter are the outcome measures, not the curriculum. So the nature of the SATs, the GCSEs, the A-levels, the things that are deemed to be of value and which are measurable um, in those sorts of tests, because those tests become the thing that becomes translated into school league tables. Those tests become important to the individual child because we've attributed so much value to them. So if you don't get a, a level five in your GCSEs, then there are so many doors that are closed to you at the age of 16. Um, If you don't, um, if you, if you're not working above average, then you're deemed to be working below average and, and you get swamped with a range of interventions, which might actually take up even more of your time and narrow the curriculum even further. So the fact that actually we often say the curriculum is too narrow is probably not accurate. What's more accurate is that the outcome measures are too too narrow. So the opportunities that we have to be more, um, to to teach with more uh, depth and richness become squeezed out because what we have is this urgent need to teach for the outcome measures. And and that's, again, if I say that, some people will say that I have um, denied the fact that many teachers teach extraordinarily rich curriculum experiences in in very innovative and creative ways. And I'm not saying that, I'm saying that if teachers feel that they don't have the time to teach that way, they might feel obliged to teach in a fairly narrow construct. And they are almost informed, if you like, that it's for their own well-being. Cut out the stuff you don't need for your own well-being. And again, when we know there are real problems with teachers well-being and burnout it's very difficult for me to say we'll do something different than that yeah and I think this is the great thing about why on the podcast and having academics on like yourself as well as having head teachers on that we've had as well as having students like ourselves on the podcast is that there is different perspectives and different stages of of education that that all have a different viewpoint and listening to the different viewpoints and working together um it's certainly something that me and Sam have really benefited from. And it, actually, it ties in really well with what you are doing at Collective Ed at the moment and your your work with that. And, you know, you talk about creating a network with with teachers, with academics, with students as well. Uh, first of all, how did that come about? And why did you want to create that, that project, at, you know, from a personal point of view? So Collective Ed is the centre for mentoring, coaching and professional learning. And it exists because having gained the post professor of teacher education, 
I was then asked to set up a research centre that could become the home for my research and, if you like, um, a magnet's probably too strong a word, but could draw other people in to that research. Um, so that's why Collective Ed exists. The reason why my research relates to mentoring, coaching and professional learning is because one of the one of the constants in my professional life, and it, and it hasn't mattered where I've been working or in what role, is the opportunity to be mentored by others, the opportunity to support others through mentoring myself, the opportunity to work alongside other mentors to help them develop their practice. And as my career moved on from uh, school into university, a bridging part of that was a novel opportunity to be involved in coaching. So if you like, if I look back at what has made a difference to me as a teacher and a teacher educator, what has brought me into contact with others that have then inspired me or have then motivated me, have helped me learn, or have, or have given me a role, have helped me feel as if the job I'm doing is worth doing. It has often been through those relationships based on coaching and mentoring or in networks of teachers where the joint endeavor is professional learning, learning which will have an impact on our practice, personal stories that attract them to the, you know, the thing that becomes their, their area of concern, the thing that they dedicate their life to. that sounds grand but you you know as an academic you do end up dedicating large chunks of your life to something so there is a very strong personal narrative and it's also I think because I spent I did spend a long time as a if you like as a chalk face teacher educator at a period of time and this was in the 2000s when uh, PGCE provision was the core route into teaching we, we didn't have school direct. There wasn't teach first. Um, and if you wanted to be a secondary teacher, you had to have a degree in your subject first. So then your routine was PGCE. And I spent a lot of time um, recruiting student teachers to the PGCE groups that I would then teach for the year and being very conscious of them as individuals from the starting point from often from october november before they began their pgc when they would they would tip up for interview and they were nervous or they were um, ambitious they were excited they were they were just them they were just you know genuinely lovely enthusiastic young people and then getting to know them from that moment of interview, keeping them um, wanting to be teachers so that they turned up in September, and then really providing the backbone to their PGCE through the, through the program that we offered at the university and through the relationships that we had with our local schools and the mentors that they worked with, and seeing how all of that blended together and made their journey to becoming a teacher both kind of compelling and sometimes a struggle because these things are and almost always um, a triumph so we we rarely lost 
students along the way. We might have had a few hiccups along the way. Of course, of course that happens. But we, we managed to create, um, you know, out of these bright, young, ambitious things, these ready to fledge teachers at the end of the year. And it's, it's, it's a holistic process. It's not done just by throwing somebody onto a placement. It's not just done by crafting the right essays. It doesn't matter quite which books you've read. It's the, it's the holistic experience. That means that you become the best teacher you can be at the stage of the career you're at. Now, that's a very long way of saying that even as a teacher educator with a fair degree of autonomy, I was able to design my program the way I choose. It was never my course. It was always a course which was only possible because of the network of mentors in these fantastic placement schools and the relationships which the students built up with them. So that fascination with, with mentoring was really invigorated in my years as a teacher educator, which then allowed me to, to imagine and then undertake pieces of work, research, which could contribute to an understanding of mentoring um, and an understanding of some of the difficulties of mentoring as well as some of its um, perks, some, some of its key triumphs. I think mentors do probably get overlooked a bit and yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky with my mentor. I know Sam has, but equally we could have been very unlucky or for, for whatever reason. And I think that would, as you say, impact our experience and impact our journey into teaching. And you're obviously talking about from your experience, the nurturing side of when you were in that role and how you were invested in, you know, keeping that holistic um, development going through the process. And I think mentors now probably have that role to do, you know, for us. I feel like they have to take on that role whilst teaching their class, whilst making sure that they're keeping up to, to you know, teaching standards and, and making sure that their their class are getting the best education that they can they can get. So I think they are they are juggling so much work around and I think that gets overlooked. Yeah, I I often describe them as the Cinderella profession. So they're there all the time and they're doing, they've got, a, even as, you know, sometimes as a mentor, you think, oh, well, I don't have to plan quite so much because my student teacher's here now and they're going to, they're going to teach these lessons. That, that's not, that doesn't actually reduce your workload significantly because if you're mentoring well, you're not doing the job for the student teacher, but you're now teaching them yeah so you're you've you've yeah you're, you're right we overlook them too often um i wasn't saying though, you by the way obviously not you this is no, your no, no, bread and butter, but i mean just in general the system, as a... <laughs> the system overlooks yeah. them and it means i think that one of the consequences of that is that um well they're not given adequate time to do the job well um, and sometimes yeah the consequences of them not being given adequate time to do the job well is that the relationships that they could have built with the student teachers are not effectively built and, and relationships really matter. I completely agree. So, and I know you'll agree as well, Sam, with exactly what we, we were saying, you know, the Cinderella role in, in that you described. And I think, yeah, I think we just, I think me and Sam do appreciate what they're doing and val really value what they're doing for our development right i think 
one of, I'll just say one of the things which I always find fascinating is how the experience that a student teacher or an NQT, an early career teacher has with their mentor can either really motivate that person to become a mentor later in their professional life or demotivate them from becoming a mentor. But one of the issues is that they may not have a choice about whether they become a mentor or not. It may be, be their turn or it may be um, that they are um, expected to be a mentor as part of their, um, if you like, CV, developing their career trajectory. And so, you know, the experience that the person they then offer to their, sorry, the experience they then offer to their mentee will emerge at least in part from the experience that they had with their mentor. So we end up with these cycles. Process. Yeah, yeah, as I say, like a process or a cycle almost, isn't yeah. it? I think, I think the whole thing is, is fascinating. And obviously like the, the project that you've got going on and, and the research is, is really interesting as well. In regards to collective ed then, where do you see it going? Is this, are you going to use this as like a national hub uh, to bring together loads of teachers, academics um, and students uh, in order to help each other, mentor each other? Are you, is it a way of, of raising awareness within like the teaching community about how important uh, mentoring is? Wh where do you see this project going or where would you like, like it to go essentially? Okay. So it is, it has many different qualities already, okay? Um, and, but it, it has some very central aims. So one of the key aims is to increase the available knowledge base about good coaching and mentoring, and to ensure that some of the things that get in the way of good coaching and mentoring are better understood, whether that's by school leaders or policymakers or teacher educators, so that we can, if you like, aim for the good. So we want every teacher who is a mentor to know that they can bring best practices into play because we know that they make a difference to the young teachers that they're mentoring. So we want to create a knowledge base. So there's an endeavor to continue to research and that's both, if you like, in academic research, but also practitioner research. So people who are themselves coaches and or mentors undertaking practice-based research to help gain greater insight into their own capacity as mentors, their own skill base to develop in the ways that they want to, but also to be able to contribute to a larger knowledge base. So a big ambition of ours is just to create more knowledge from which practitioners, mentors, coaches, or student teachers, for example, can gain insight in order to support them in their practice. It's no good creating a knowledge base that sits behind um, academic firewalls. So one of the real criticisms that we often get, and, the, and it's justified in some ways, uh, from teachers and school leaders is that research that's generated in universities sits in academic journals that they can't access because they're no longer students of a university. So they can't log in and access that. And even if they could access it, it's, it takes too much time to read, you know, half a dozen academic journal articles in order to understand the one thing you most want to understand 
uh, on that day. So uh, we also have an ambition to generate a really accessible knowledge base. So we include in that um, open access working papers written by researchers and practitioners around themes of coaching and mentoring that can be dipped into um, without consuming an entire night's worth of reading, for example. So there's about creating a knowledge base, making a knowledge base accessible, um, looking for ways for knowledge exchange. So I learn most by talking to teachers and school leaders. In other words, I'm exchanging, they're exchanging their knowledge with me. Yeah. And as I reflect on what I learn from teachers and school leaders, then I can, if you like, refine my knowledge um, and I can translate that into something which is of use again to them. So we, we, have, a, we have potential for knowledge exchange. So this weekend, for example, we held a plenary of our um, collective ed knowledge exchange event, which was a month's worth of um, CPD content around coaching, mentoring, and professional learning that was offered online, that was made up of uh, video recorded conversations between people about coaching, mentoring, and professional learning. And could be accessed by our participants across a whole month. In fact, it'll still be there for another month. And which culminated on Saturday with an opportunity for everybody who'd been accessing those videos to come together, listen to some keynote speakers, engage with a panel, but also go into discussion rooms to reflect on what they'd been learning. So again, this notion of bringing people together to exchange knowledge is really critical. The thing which is quite unique about Collective Ed is that it is utterly deliberately um, about education in its widest sense. Okay, so yeah. we don't position ourselves as um, teacher educators or as um, you know primary teachers or as mentors. Or we want everybody who is involved in making education work and making it better to come into the same space. And that, we don't divide ourselves into early career teachers and professors. We want everybody in the same room. So that's, that's one of the things that's quite unusual about what we do. And that diversity, I assume, will bring that richness of knowledge, that original knowledge, which I guess the, the goal is that everyone can access the knowledge yeah. from different walks of education, which is obviously yeah. great from mine <laughs> sounds great was why wouldn't you do it <laughs> exactly what's what not to love about it and, and, and just going to illustrate that so one of the reasons that that's such an important thing for me is because a very a very early experience as a teacher educator where as well as teaching on the pgce i was teaching a master's module and the master's module was all around inquiry-based learning and i one year i had my group i think there are about 15 um teachers i thought they'd all be teachers um, kind of went into the first session for the master's module, got everybody to introduce themselves and kind of thought, oh, my word, um, they're all so different from each other. How am I going to how am I going to bring this group together so that we're all learning something which is meaningful in so many different contexts? So just to give you an example, I had um, an early years um, manager sitting next to. Um, a consultant um, palliative care doctor 
who also happened to teach in the medical school of the university and was working towards his doctorate in education because as well as being a doctor of medicine, he wanted to be an expert in medical education. This guy sounds so, like, or girl sounds like the cleverest person ever, by the way. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> there, I mean, there are, but there are hugely clever people. The early years practitioner was extraordinarily clever. And this is where the anecdote goes. So here's this guy who, and in, in, the, in the medical school he taught in, palliative care, so palliative care being care at, at the end of life, is on the curriculum for fifth year medics for good reason okay he's and he so every year he would have a new group of fifth year medics medical students who had to learn about palliative care but because palliative care is about end of life care and about medical support and intervention but also when to uh, retreat from medical support and intervention and because it's about caring for an individual who's going to be lost from their family because they are going to die they're ill enough Mm -hmm. to die it's an extraordinarily sensitive, emotive, as well as medical topic. It's not the same as learning how to, um, you know, safely administer an anesthetic. It's extraordinarily complex and sensitive. And in a group of fifth year medics, every year he's going to have people who have very recently lost a grandparent, a sibling, a friend, Um, who have um, experienced all sorts of levels of grief. And also we're going to have in that fifth year medical group, they're going to have students who are really fearful and anxious about death as a process, who also see it as a real complication because as doctors, they're basically there to try and save life. And sometimes you have to let life go. And also you've got people of different faiths so different faiths with their own relationship to life and death. So he's got this complicated group of, of students. And he was telling us about this complicated group of students and the need that he had to cover the curriculum so that when they went into practice, which would be very soon after, they could cope with some of the complications of palliative care. And the, the piece that he took away from that module and that he turned into his assignment, because yeah, he had to write an assignment, came from a moment in conversation with the early years teacher wow. who was talking wow. about how in her setting they were introducing philosophy for children with five-year-olds and what the principle of the of philosophy for children was, why as a pedagogic approach it allowed each individual child to be in the room as an individual, to ask the questions they wanted to ask, to express the ideas that came to them through their learning, to learn how to share those ideas in a way that's articulate, to learn how to respect each other, to take turns, for example. And he took that conversation around philosophy for children and he turned it into a curriculum model for palliative care for fifth year medics. And that is... I, yeah. I just was there allowing that to happen, facilitating it, appreciating it, welcoming it, in, enabling the rest of the group to join in, you know, to kind of help them co-construct ideas together. And from that moment on, you just think, what would have been the point of that early years teacher being in a module with 20 other early years teachers who are all at the same career stage as her, who probably knew much the same that she knew, or that palliative care consultant being in a 
medical education training room with only other medical educators. We would yeah. never have got to that point, that joining up. So that's, that's almost been my, that's been my inspiration. And it, it follows right the way through to Collective Ed. So just before I came onto this, I was hosting a meeting of 18 Collective Ed fellows, international, um, we had um, Canadians, Finns, we had Scots, Brits. Um, on this occasion, we didn't have Australians because the time zone doesn't work. We had teacher educators, we had teachers, we had mentors, we had school leaders, we had retired school leaders, we had teachers who were early in their career, all in the same room for one hour, and we have um, started to imagine and design a new book that will only come into life if all of us, with all of those varied experiences and contexts, can really, um, if you like, bring our own narratives to bear. And that will be unlike any other book because it's about the people who bring their own expertise and experiences to that space. And we I will expect to have that on the podcast exclusive when that does come out. Rachel, it will so. be a long time coming because <laughs> it will be done well. Well, it exactly. It will be done we're, in a hurry, but it's going to We'll be still well. be here, don't worry. Probably are a lot older, but we will be here. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the interesting points that you made when you were just talking there, uh, Rachel, and just, just before that as well, you, you said about um, teachers having continued access to, to journals and stuff obviously like when we're doing our training years like we have links through the university to access all these amazing websites and stuff to access the, these journals and stuff about having to pay essentially a subscription fee did you say like when obviously when we, when we leave the university that link goes when as part of collective ed are you looking to develop that so it, so these papers become more accessible Is, yeah we have um I mean, so there's a few things within all of that. One is that, um, you know, the, it's true to say that when you are a signed up student, you have easy access to academic peer reviewed journals through the library. What people often then say is I can't have that access when I'm not a signed up student and that there is some truth in that. Um, however, it is now an obligation that the majority of material that ends up in peer reviewed journals is also available open access in order for universities to get the quality mark, if you like, of research. What people tend not to know is how to access open access journals. So yeah, it's, it's always helpful to tell people that materials exist. I was only asking because I think there might be listeners listening to the podcast, but especially for me and Matt, when we've, fingers crossed, uh, graduate from our postgraduate, we're both looking to do our master's in the future. And obviously there might be like a couple of years or a few years before we actually apply to do our masters and for both of us we, we find the academic uh, side really interesting especially holding conversations with people like yourself so ha knowing how to access uh, those journals still would be really key for us in order to keep up with our reading yeah. and um, staying engaged with the academic side yeah so I mean I mean a simple thing is just using google scholar google oh. scholar gets you into a lot of journals yeah. um, and also identifies where the same papers are published in open access form um, so if I if I have a paper published in a journal, I have to put it in the university repository as an open access paper. Depending on which journal it's in, it will be released sooner or later as open access. Yeah. It does it does depend what the licensing agreements are for journals. So the, so given all of those complications, what Collective Ed has done is, uh, and it's in the field of coaching or mentoring, it's produced. 
um, a collection of working papers. So I'm currently editing issue 12 of our working papers. Issue 12 will have 24 brand new working papers. Some of them are based on research. Some of them are practice-based. Some of them are book reviews, conference reviews. Some of them are think pieces, but they're all really good reads around coaching and mentoring. And that's issue 12. Almost all the other issues have got between, well, they've got between 12 and 26 papers in. So we, and they are internationally written. So there, there are ways in to knowledge without having to go through the peer reviewed system. And, and one of our ambitions is to make sure that we create those ways in. And so to be really good. part yeah. of Collective Ed, if let's say me and Sam wanted to be part of it, would we have to like, subscribe? Would we have to pay or sus- subscribe or will we just? No, Collective join? Ed is just a network. So just a network. I mean, uh, on a very basic level, Collective Ed is a Twitter account. Yeah. And there are 7,000 followers. And, you know, just as an example, I'm doing an advent calendar. Again, it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit of a cliche. But every day there's an advent calendar post. It has a nice photograph of a door because advent calendars have doors. Um, I'm waiting to see if I run out of photographs of doors on my phone. I haven't yet. I seem to have a bit of a thing about photographing doors. Well, if you need some, let us know. We'll send some over. We've got Thank a you. Of doors so I have a spare. photograph of a door <laughs> and then I have a link to something interesting from the world of coaching, mentoring, and professional learning. So it might be somebody's blog. It might be, um, it might be a work. I haven't put working papers on there yet. I might do it. Might it, it could be a podcast. It could be anything. So even just having access to Twitter means that if you follow the right accounts, you're going to have a window into or a door into, as advent calendars go, a whole range of resources. So. The Twitter account is obviously open to anybody, um, as long as you're not rude, in which case we will block you, um, <laughs> which I have done. Um, and it's, it's a way to share and access resources. That's the most basic level. Um, the open access uh, resources are all available on the Leeds Beckett website. So if you just want to stay informed, you want to engage, you can easily keep an eye on what's in there. We welcome contributions from anybody so if we've got contributions in there from student teachers as well as mentors school leaders etc in relation to coaching or mentoring we have um, a number of events that happen every year so the next one coming up in January has a focus on mentoring and it'll just be a free online CPD event that anybody can attend and we also have a network of collective ed fellows And our fellows are all people who have previously contributed to this knowledge base. So the knowledge base matters. So they might have written a working paper or they might have contributed um, a short talk or presentation at a collective ed event. And they then demonstrate through a very um, hopefully painless application process why they are interested in and committed to coaching, mentoring, or professional learning and supporting others. And then they, their application is reviewed and then they get confirmed as a fellow. And at the moment we have about 70 collective ed fellows. We have no idea what numbers we'll get to in what time. It doesn't matter to us. It's not about, it's not a numbers game. It's about creating a network of people who then are committed to sharing with each other their interests and their expertise. 
And th those fellows, again, they are a complete mix of people and they're international and that's a unique network. So there's lots of ways to engage, yeah. to participate, no. to contribute and to engage. Yeah, sounds sounds great. It's just good to, you know, hear it all from the from the horse's mouth, the creator herself, <laughs> you know. It's and and what do we have to do to get behind one of these doors then? What uh what do we have to do to get behind one of these Oh, that's a good question. I know, if you yeah. can get this podcast published before the twenty fourth of December, it can be behind a door. But I, if you I can make flag that up happen, another Rachel, podcast and I'll do that one. I can make that's it enough happen. for me. Yeah, yeah, that's enough for me. I'll get it done. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. <laughs> we'll postpone our episode just yeah. for you, Rachel. 100%. That's what we're sacrificing right now. But I mean, that it doesn't need to be this one. Actually, it could be any. You choose. You choose. Which podcast do you no, think would be, be interesting? About, if it's going to be about mentoring, it's got to be. It's got to be the head. The head of collective head has got to be behind <laughs> the door. Has to be. Um, it's entirely up to you. I'm happy to put put anything out there which is going to help people learn and make people think. That's what we're doing. Um, <laughs> before I get into the CPD part, I've got one question, which I've kind of skipped earlier, but you've, you've kind of touched on it a few times and I want to just ask it outright. You were talking about when you were a teacher initially as a secondary school teacher, and then you went into teacher education. And then obviously now you've gone into ac academia um, as a doctor and a professor. Do you think that to have the impact on coaching and mentoring that you want to do and you are having now, you had to go into academia, into universities to, to have that larger impact? Or could you, do you think you would have been happy with the impact you'd have made as a teacher educator? Oh, well, teach, I mean, I was a teacher educator as the teacher educators that you work with at Leeds Beckett. It, we are all academics. We are all scholars. Um, so, you know, there's not so much of, there's not really a wall between, between the two roles. You ask about impact. I, it depends what, I, I, the word impact has certain academic connotations because it gets mixed up with metrics in research terms. Oh, I don't want that. So I don't I'm, want any I'm, metrics. <laughs> no, it, but it has a whole host of metric connotations. So I tend to use the word legacy more than impact. Okay. okay? I think legacy is more important. It's it's what what emerges from practice. It what it's it's what gets left behind that makes a difference. And I think you can have the most powerful legacy as a mentor on even if you only mentor once, even if you're only in the luxurious position of having a student teacher with you once in your career, you can have the most amazing legacy through that. Because what you are doing is you're creating opportunities for a new teacher to um, thrive um, and to have ripples that go out from their work throughout their career for years and years and years to come. Um, so I don't really measure um, my value in terms of impact. What I'm interested in is the extent to which the people I work with over time leave a legacy that then makes a difference. And I don't think I needed to be a professor to do that. Yeah, I, no. I, I've been doing that since, you know, since I became a teacher. It's what we're here for. I think, yeah. Well, that's why I asked the question. I'm glad I did because it's, you know, the way you've described it there and, and spoken about it is I probably wouldn't have thought of it 
like that before. So yeah, I'm glad I asked the question now because you've you've educated me on that side of things and, and that legacy aspect of it. So yeah, thank you. No. The other word I tend to use now, this is because I was an environmental scientist before, that's my degree, was environmental science. Um, I, I use the word sustainability a lot when yes. I think about the work that we do. Great word. Yeah. And, I, you know, obviously I do mean that in terms of, you know, the planet as a sustainable or necessarily sustainable um, system. But I also just mean it in terms of what are we doing in our spheres of influence? So whether we are a teacher or a, an academic or a policymaker or a leader, what are we doing that creates sustainable futures? Um, and if we are creating a profession and putting teachers into schools in which they will burn out really quickly, that's not, that's not sustainable. There's nothing sustainable about that. If, if those teachers are then obliged to teach a version of the curriculum to get kids herded through an exam, which 30 or 40% will never pass, that's not sustainable. No. I don't think. It, it, you, can, you, can, you can explain why it works, but you can't demonstrate it as being sustainable over time. So I think... Legacy and sustainability is part of our, um, we need to think about our work in those ways. I know Matt wants to go on to um, the CPD and stuff, and then you've, you've opened up a, a whole avenue there of which we could probably spend here for the next two hours talking about sustainability and oh, yes. yeah, for teaching and, and, and the environment and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you, Matt, but I feel slightly greedy in asking, like, oh, can we have any, like, CPD or research papers that that you'd recommend because I feel like we've got access to free free access to journals I mean you've you spoke about collective ed and the next issue being out and there's 24 papers on um issue 12 things like issue that. 12 issue 12 issue 12 that's it so, so yeah it's I think fascinating and yeah we do have well you would like to say we have a CPD section which we would normally you know pick out a, a selection of your papers but like you say you know we're talking about collective ed and we're talking about that network of of access and accessing the these resources and this knowledge base that you talk about. And I think the CPD section for me really would have to be, you know, following collective ed and, and getting getting on board with that because we can pick out individual papers. Well, the other but... way in actually, but, but another good way in, because we're, um, we're quite productive at collective ed. If you go on to the Carnegie School of Education blog, and if you look at the headings, if you, if you click on the tag collective ed, there's, uh, I don't know how many, but there's an awful lot of blogs. All of them relate to coaching, mentoring, professional learning. Some of them are written by me, but others are written by some of our fellows. Um, and they're even easier and quicker to access than the working papers. So go. in terms of a space, a, a, sorry, a starting place that makes that makes a good starting place. And we will be putting that on our Instagram and Twitter accounts when this does come out, because yeah, that's great information. And I, I didn't even know that was there. So yeah, like, <laughs> you know, thanks. Thanks for letting me know. Um, I was going to say, Sam, are you going to talk about the 
research projects in the future maybe or just ask gonna be a bit cheeky you know you mentioned the other day um briefly that you were working on some new international projects over the next potentially the next few months um care to just care to just enlighten us and give us a little exclusive of what you got coming up um in the research center in the next the next year okay well i think so uh, I'm, I, I am one of those people that lives in the moment a little bit. So I'm going to just come back to the meeting I've just come out of there you go. Um, around this book. And because the, the, the other thing which is true is if you say stuff out loud to other people, Collective Ed Fellows, where we started from scratch to imagine a book. And then having come to this podcast recording with you two and telling you about it, I'm almost... I can't wriggle out anymore. <laughs> we, we, we can, can delay the podcast, pa- yeah. podcast if you want. We don't have to be behind any doors. We can oh, delay we'll just, this if you we'll want. We'll just edit it out. We'll edit that bit no, out. No, no. It's, fine. <laughs> it's fine. So, uh, okay. So uh, that for me is a really exciting new project, which I, th- I think will come about. Um, what it will be is um, we, we, t- we started to talk about it as a coffee table book about coaching, mentoring, and teaching, and teacher education. Not in a kind of, you know, it costs 150 quid and it's got 150 glamorous photographs in it, but is in as a kind of book where you didn't have to start at the beginning and wade through 25 chapters, all of which were 6,000 words long to get to the point of the book at the end. But a book which you could pick up and open at any page and learn something about teachers, teachers' lives, and how we support teachers through coaching and mentoring and professional development. And it might be an image, or it might be a short memoir, or it might be a glimpse into some research data that gives us really significant intelligence about something. But on every page, you could learn something new. Um, and that's, that will happen, that book will happen. <laughs> because I've now committed to to it. It has to, that's it. And it's not just me, because I've now got a whole host of Collective Ed Fellows who are sitting around the world being really excited about contributing to that book. So that's a really exciting... It's not a formal research project. You know, it it won't be uh, constructed through a funded project with a whole host of ethical considerations, but it's... It's a knowledge generating and a knowledge sharing project. And I think it's going to be really exciting. Sounds exciting. Get, yeah. I think we have to get our pre-orders in now then. I know, yeah. yeah. Well, pre-orders. We're asking a lot here behind doors, pre-orders of these books, <laughs> exclusives. We're, we really are rinsing you here. But um, <laughs> no, it does. Uh, it sounds sounds really exciting. And um, like you say, we've uh, we've tied you down now so that's it you've got to, you've got to make it happen so apologies for that <laughs> it's okay um you know rachel's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today um i could sit here and talk to you for another hour to be honest with you um but i don't think people have that much time to listen to the podcast and i don't think they want to listen to me and sam anymore so um on that note if you I'd say we've talked about collective ed a lot and if you want to go and, and get in touch and follow that on twitter it is at collective ed one um, also follow Rachel at Dr. R Lofthouse again and you'll find your way to Collective Ed um, and follow her journey and, and hopefully you'll find you know what you've we've spoken about today and what they offer um, really helpful and really beneficial for your for your own teaching journey in terms of ourselves we're always about Instagram at the Teacher of Tomorrow Twitter at T of T pod 
get in touch with us. Say hello. Any suggestions? Any guests? We'll, you know, our uh, our DMs are always open, as as Rachel well knows. So, yeah, Sam, I don't know if you've got anything to round off. I was I was going to say I know Rachel was like kind of spoken and made a pro- promise, but I know you touched on it earlier about sustainability, and I know I don't even have to ask Matt about that, but. I feel like we might have to do another episode on teacher sustainability. And I can tell by Matt's face now that he's very excited by that prospect. That so. word just gets me excited. That <laughs> word, it excites me. Obviously, we appreciate how busy you are and stuff. But yeah, that would be a really fascinating episode because obviously it's such a, well, we're in a critical moment really in, in where the world is right now. And obviously with the environment and stuff, like it definitely needs speaking about. Mm-hmm. And, you can, and you're more than welcome to bring someone on with you. <laughs> I can certainly think of people who might come and join that conversation. Yes, yes. I'm going to pencil that one in for 20... <laughs> Attenborough. <laughs> 2021, <laughs> that one's coming in. Um, but no, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Sam, good to speak to you as always, mate. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. So take care, guys. Have a great evening. Thank you. Cheers. To get in touch with us following the latest podcast episode, head over to at the Teachers of Tomorrow on Instagram or over on Twitter via at TFT Pod.